have an amazing episode for you guys today. Episode 197 with Randy Brown. Randy Brown is one of the most unique individuals we've brought onto this podcast. He, for over 32 years, he served as an HR leader, professional, executive vice president, uh, chief HR officer for Anthem. But for the last 10 or so years, he's been at Butler University mentoring MBA students, undergraduate students, guiding them through that critical transition from college to the working world. So as you can imagine, he brings a lot of different types of knowledge to this podcast. He talks about when he was in corporate, um, how he preserved a healthy company culture with ginormous organizations and how as they acquired companies, as they grew, how he was able to preserve that and work with people of all different types of viewpoints. And I thought learning that is very valuable for people that are established professionals or, or HR professionals or HR leaders, but also for the people who are younger in college, who are about mm-hmm. to enter the workforce. We spent a large part of this interview um, talking about that transition and the lessons that he imparts on his students. So valuable knowledge from someone who has done it, succeeded, um, and, and just, yeah, and is living it. So I thought this interview was really good. So Slager, what did you think about this interview? I really enjoyed it. And you know, I'm, I'm super appreciative that you set this one up. I had never met Randy before the day that we had to record. And I kind of like those. Um, it, it is fun when I know someone kind of going into it helps me kind of with comfortability and guide the conversation. But right off the bat, Randy, he was into it. He was all there. And he, he goes into advice to those who are not sure about their passions or skills. You know, a lot of people, they just don't know what they like to do yet. So I ask him about that. He gets in a little deeper with his thoughts about gap years as well because we were curious if taking a gap year in between high school and college would be beneficial. And so he gives us advice on that. And then he goes into how he kind of guides college students who still can't seem to figure it out. You know, you're just stuck. I, I felt it in college where, you know, I'm studying something. Is that really what I want to do? Is that what I'm meant to do? Is that how I can help people and the world to the best of my ability? I didn't know he helps people figure that out as well. And then he reflects on past experiences that have helped him be better in his current role. So what are some things he's dealt with in his prior HR experience over multiple companies in different roles? And what are some things that he has been able to take from those roles and then bring into his role at Butler as well? Then he rounds out the show by explaining how he wants to be remembered when it's all said and done. Our favorite question we love to ask all of our guests is how they want to be remembered. And he he just delivers it. And that was kind of this whole podcast. You know, we, we just had a lot of fun. You'll hear it come through in the show. We enjoy our time together. We get into very specific things. We detour here and detour there. And it was just a well-rounded episode with a ton of value, a lot of laughs. We threw, we threw some jabs. So it was just a good, fun show. Uh, everyone's going to get a whole lot out of it, whether you're in college, out of college, uh, in a role you're stuck in, not sure where you want to be. We got everything in this one for you. So without further ado, here we are with the real Randy Savage, not trying to get copyright infringement, but the real Randy Savage, Randy Brown. So Randy, thanks for joining us today, sir. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Um, I'd say for our our audience, uh, usually how we like to kind of kick things off is just ask the question of, of how you got here, and then we will kind of dive in the weeds as we go along. Sure. 
Well, um, how I got here, meaning Butler University. Yep, yep. yep. Take us take us back a little bit. Introduce yourself, okay. and yeah, we'll we'll kind of weave in and out here. Well, don't be afraid because I'm going to start young, but I'll go okay. fast. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I grew up in Canton, Ohio. First of my family to go to college, um, and uh, after I graduated, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, um, but we as a kid we struggled for money, and I didn't want to struggle for money. It's a noble profession, but that was just an economic thing that drove me. And so I thought, where can I blend my uh, desire to develop and help people grow into a career where I can make a buck? And I thought about human resources and thought about, uh, you know, it's a gamble when you're 22, you don't know. So I gave it a shot. Turned out that I liked it a lot, a lot better than I thought I would. I was lucky to have a 33-year career in that field. First 19 years were in consumer electronics with RCA, GE, and then a company called Thompson Multimedia. I never left any of those companies. They just kept changing on me. <laughs> the company got bought, but I had really great experiences at all three. Um, but after, uh, at age 42, I got a call from a recruiter saying a company headquartered in Indy called Anthem was looking to go public, and they wanted a, a leader of their HR function that could help them go public with stock compensation and and, uh, and also a, a guy who was interested in mergers and acquisitions, because they were going to do a lot of those. And fortunately, I had done a few of those before I got there. Interviewed, got the job, loved it. It was uh, life-changing and uh, stayed there until I was 55. And uh, at that point, I just decided there's no guarantees. Um, it's time to give back. Um, and so I looked for ways to do that. And long story short, through talking out loud to lots of different people about things I wanted to do, a 25-year-old guy said, I think I know what that is. He pointed me toward Butler University and their career mentoring program. And it was, it turns out it was exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. And so now I'm here, I've been here since 2014. I work uh, with anywhere between 80 to uh, 100 students at a time each year and help them, as I like to say, um, figure out what they want to do and then go get it. And uh, that's, that's what I do now. I also work with MBAs in the leadership program here at Butler University. So this has been my, for the last eight years, it's been my kind of, it's a, it's a really fulfilling, fun phase of kind of post-corporate life mm -hmm. and uh, having a blast. Went back, yeah. to, back to school. Yeah, there we go, yeah. So, um, Back up a little bit. Your time in in corporate. Talk us through that a little bit. Anthem um, dealing with insurance. I'm in a field where I've dealt on the other side of insurance, where they, <laughs> they might give the patient benefits, they might not. You know, kind of uh, that side of things. But on your end, uh, what was that world like for you? Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, the uh, quickest way to shut down conversations at a party is to tell somebody you work for a health insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that you know, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, uh, but the truth of the matter is um, we did a lot of good. We, uh, we covered a lot of, uh, of costs for a lot of people and grew the company. And if, you, if, you're, if you're not doing something well, you're not going to grow. And so we grew a lot over the years. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot about what it took. You know, it was fascinating to be there during the Obamacare um, revolution because mm. we were. And so wanting to make sure that that legislation came out as right as it could um, was something we focused on. But most of what I enjoyed during my time there was that we were always buying and integrating companies. Mm. And so when you're the head of HR, one of the things you do a lot is you work on the integration of those companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, imagine this. Um, your, your company has just been acquired, and 
you want to know what it's going to mean to you, and your spouse wants to know what it's going to mean to them and their and your family. So lots and lots of human questions associated with merger and acquisition. I had a good friend who was the CFO, and I said, "Hey, it's easy to buy it. I got to make it work, right?" And yeah. and we were a team on that, and it was a great, great period of my career. So it wasn't just the business we were in or the HR function as much as doing uh, integrating companies after we bought them. It was a real human. Um, and business challenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, like, during that integration, what are, like, obviously you have you want to educate the people on things. What are some of the top priorities from your perspective whenever you guys would acquire someone from, from the HR perspective? Day one, uh, when you go in, you want to um, take away all the unfounded fears, mm-hmm. okay? You want to answer as many questions as you can. Like if things, if certain things aren't going to change, you want to tell them right up front they're not going to change. Mm-hmm. But you also don't want to overpromise. You don't want to say that nothing's going to change because mm-hmm. something always changes, right? Um, so you try and kind of level set um, all the fears that are going through people's minds. Take away the unfounded ones. Let them know that on the question marks, we're going to keep talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more that you can keep some of the people that were in charge of their company in charge for at least a period of time mm-hmm. and work with them, the more that usually puts people at ease. So it's really helping people just know that in the long run, I think this is going to be okay for most people. Some mm-hmm. people won't like it, and we respect that. We'll move yeah. on. But um, it's kind of taking fear out of their minds so that mm-hmm. they can refocus their energy on you know normal life. Right. Yeah. Right, but you but never never overpromise because something yeah. always changes. Sure, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> and were most of those companies that uh, you guys acquired other insurance companies having to do with insurance, or were some kind of a little different? Than that's that? a great question. We we were a Blue Cross Blue Shield company, so we expanded our geography within the United States by buying Blue Cross Blue Shield of Virginia, Blue Cross Blue Shield okay. of. So we were in. Um, uh, I think it was about 20 states when we were all done and had a pretty big market share. Um, but sometimes we bought companies to diversify. So we would buy a pharmacy company or a dental uh, business. Or a, it was a really cool company we bought in California that helped um, Medicare people stay healthy. Right. Mm-hmm. So that in the, at the end of the day, if you keep people healthy, the insurance cost is going to go down, right? Mm-hmm. So it was really a, a unique program where you're actually giving care and at the same time keeping the cost of their insurance and, and your cost down. So all kinds of things, all in the health-related space. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Now, with that much integration, there's a lot of different company cultures going yes. on there. So <laughs> you at Anthem, you guys are used to the way you do things and kind of your environment and how you all jive. Then you acquire these new companies. How do you kind of make that work and mesh? Mm. That's the, there's a great stat out. Um, your question is really insightful because it just it, it's like 74% of mergers and acquisitions fail to realize their financial objectives largely because of inattention to cultural issues, mm. right? You bought this company. Um, there's very factual things you can talk about, but no one talks about the way we do things around here. Right. And the way we do things around here is culture. So just to give you an example, this is a silly one, but in one of my first acquisitions, it was in a Seattle-based company. It was kind of a garage shop, grungy place, full of young people, and this big corporate entity just bought them, right? And I went up, and you know, I'm going to meet the employees for the first time, and I said to the CEO, what's the most pressing issue on their mind? And he said bar none, it's, are you going to kill beer Fridays? 
Every Friday we bring in a cake, and, uh, and they think that no large company will ever stand for that and allow it. So if you want to ease their minds, just tell them we're still going to have Beer Friday. So I said, really? That's it? That's the one thing they want to it's know? Because that's easy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and you go out there, and you're like, hey, guys, it's 5 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, just tell me, you don't let anybody, anybody drive home drunk, right? Okay. Right, good, right. good, good, good. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. That, but that's a cultural norm. They mm-hmm. agree to expect that it was part of how they it was part of the job you know those kind of things yeah so you really had to work hard to learn what was the unique aspects of culture that made a company thrive and not kill those things Mm -hmm. and the parts of culture that didn't matter so much where you could have efficiency then you kind of integrated those things but you tried to preserve localness uniqueness wherever it gave distinction Mm. if that makes sense yeah just because you bought another company doesn't mean um, you should impose your way on them. In fact, every time we bought one, we said, we're going to look for one thing we can take from you and deploy it company-wide. Yeah, I love that. that. I brilliant. love that. And you talk about the uniqueness, the localness. Is there anything that like all solid company culture shared across the board from these companies? Like Any characteristics that were present among like, positive culture companies? Yeah, the, the, uh, the big things, wherever you found a really positive culture there was a top-down commitment. I know this is going to sound corny, but a top-down commitment that people there mattered, mm-hmm. right? However you showed it in whatever way you showed it, and there are different ways to show that. But from the top of the organization, the people who worked there felt that they mattered in a personal way. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just that they were productive. It wasn't just that they were creating output, but they and their, their well-being, their fulfillment, their happiness mm-hmm. mattered too. And so an attentiveness to that in whatever way you choose to show it was kind of a thing that ties all good cultures together. Yeah. I mean, at a company like Anthem, ginormous company, like, and I, I'm sure it's, it's technical e- term, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huge company. How do you, how do you maintain that at a company that big? Because obviously there's a lot of employees. There's a lot of, a lot of, I wouldn't say levels, but there's a lot of space between like employees and like top leadership. So how did you make employees feel known or heard and empowered? Such a great question. I think maybe there's two two parts to that. The first part is there's a concept we taught people called the shadow of the leader. So anytime you're in the, at the top of any organization, no matter what size, people watch what you do. They listen to what you say, kind of, but mostly mm-hmm. they watch what you do. So if you're in, in the, at the top of the pyramid, if you want a company that's humble, be humble. If you want a company that communicates uh, straight up, communicate straight up. So in your own behavior, as the top leader of this ginormous company, you know, show the things that you want other people to emulate because they look for cues all the time. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing you got to do is you got an army of supervisors out there and you want them to be trained and ready to, in there's a little slice of the pyramid, emulate those same kind of behaviors. Mm-hmm. So if you want that humility to, to go down through the organization, train your supervisors on how to instill that at the front level. Mm-hmm. So a lot of development of leadership it was part of the culture as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, to, you have to literally talk about the culture you want mm-hmm. and define it and show it to people and give good examples of it. Mm-hmm. So maybe one quick one, feedback-rich or feedback-starved company. A lot of companies, uh, people are starved to just hear feedback that mm-hmm. will help them grow and get better. I know you guys are all about that, right, mm-hmm. in, in your podcast. And so if you, if you want to create a company where people get feedback regularly, you're going to have to teach supervisors and leaders how to give feedback, how mm-hmm. to give feedback that people want, need, 
how, when to do it, mm-hmm. um, how to be well heard, those kind of things. So mm-hmm. it, it's there's you got to think intentionally about the culture you're trying to create, then train your army to go out and, and be yeah. able to deliver. Yeah, it sounds a lot like we we've had a guest on the show a couple of times, Scott Motts, and he talks about leading from the middle mm-hmm. in big mm-hmm. companies, and mm-hmm. he's like, you know, we talk about the very top and then the entry level. He goes, we're yeah. not talking about leading from the middle, but it sounds like you guys really trained managers to manage well mm-hmm. in order to communicate, all right, what does their boss want to what does their team need to do to make everyone be efficient and look good. Yeah, it, it's true. We, you know, evidence of that, I remember at one point when we did a, a merger of equals, two, two of us came together, Anthem and WellPoint, and became one massive company. And we decided at that point it was time to do culture training for every employee, four hours of what culture we're trying to shape here. It's not, it's not like a brainwashing. It's cultural norms and habits that we want to all build and why we want to build them. And so to do that, it took, it took nine months to put all 50,000 employees through that training, $5 million, you know. So you talk about a serious investment of time and money, you know, we did. We had to put our money where our mouth was, yeah. right? So you, you have to, a lot of people think culture is this fuzzy thing that you can never define. Culture is, is behavior, behavioral habits. And so if you want certain behavioral habits, you're into the health business, right, Colin? Yes. So you know, you know that habits are important for people to have a healthy life. Well, if you're going to have a healthy company, you have to put in place certain behavioral habits that are ingrained, understood, and reinforced all the time. Makes sense. Yeah. Are there any um, acquisitions and integrations that jump out where you guys really had to each compromise on something, some, some tougher cultures to, to mesh together? Any yes. that's really stick out? Yes. Yes. And how do you, uh, how do you navigate those? Because I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of headbutting when that happens. Oh, like, no, lot. we do it this way. Well, we do it this way, and we just own you. So. Yep. And, I, and I'll tell you the biggest one was, and it, was, it all started because of poor expectation setting. Mm-hmm. So we really were wooing this one company that was smaller than us, but operationally better than us. Mm-hmm. So I loved our CEO, but he kept saying this thing that was driving me crazy. And it was like, we're going to learn things from you. We're going to learn so much from you. We're going to learn how you do it. And it's like, yeah, he wants them to do the deal, but he's implying that we're going to do everything their way and we're not going to change uh-huh. anything. And and then suddenly we start doing the integration and we start trying to find best practices from both companies. And they throw back at us, well, but you said we were going to do things the right way. And we think our way is the right way. So sure. it was like so much, it was all well intended, but so much was, uh, you know, it's like, it's what we did to date, and then we got married, and expectations <laughs> were right. wrong. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good, that's a good yeah. it it all didn't, didn't have the boundary conversation. You're right, right. Yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't say you're going to see us in our you know, sloppy uh, Sunday attire, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then from the time that you were at Anthem to now, as you give advice to students in the present day, is there anything that's like – that's changed about company cultures or like anything that's evolved since then or like I guess anything that you advise students on when it comes to company culture because of a lesson that you learned um, at, at Anthem? Yes, uh, there's some there's some things that still are, I would say, tried and true. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some things that have changed ever since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So let me talk about the second one first, just briefly. I think now every company is struggling with where their employees should be. Mm. You know, now that we've proved that we can do work from anywhere, what kind of 
quote, flexibility are we going to give people? Right. And so there are trade-offs from that. The, everybody's, you know, loves flexibility, but some people want to be in the office and they want to be around other people. Mm-hmm. And um, so finding that sweet spot of where you ask your people to do work from home or from anywhere is kind of a thing that's changing right now. Right. And so we, I tell students all the time, find the company that gives you what you need there, right? Mm-hmm. If you want a lot of flexibility, if you don't care that you're around a team of other people, great. There's a lot of options. But if you want to be with a bunch of people physically doing work together as a group, pay attention to that part too. Mm. That's harder for students to figure out now than before. Mm. That makes sense. The stuff that is the same, though, is the need for what I would call self-advocacy. You know, raising your hand. You don't expect your boss to know what you want. Tell them what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't read your mind. You know, be do a yeah. good job always. But also keep your boss informed about your own priorities, right? Mm -hmm. Initiate Mm -hmm. conversations if they're not doing it. Uh, Give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're busy. They just weren't focused on that conversation you wanted to have. Mm -hmm. So if you're not getting what you want from your boss, raise your hand and say, hey, can we talk about this? Right. And they might think you're doing just fine. If they don't hear from you, they might think, oh, everything's good to go. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the way to prevent your manager having a false impression of what you want and need is to tell them what you want and need, right? In a very helpful, professional, non-threatening way. And there's really great ways to do it. But sure. most bosses really respond well to that. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can't count on someone else to manage your career for you. You really right. have to keep raising your hand and saying, this is what, it, it, there was one difference in my career that I tell people is over and over again, it started when I was 26, I raised my hand, I went for a job that was a little beyond my reach. And <laughs> I told my boss, you don't have to pay me what you paid the guy before me or give me the same title. I'll just do the work, and I better really want this. And he said, okay, I won't pay you what I paid him. I won't give you the same title. You got the job. <laughs> wow, that, what a tactic. I love that. <laughs> because I knew it would be a deal killer. I knew he couldn't corporate. He t- couldn't. Yeah, I was too no. young. Um, but a year later, those things came after mm-hmm. I proved it. So, But yeah. the point of that was raise your hand, ask for things you really want. That made a difference on when I could get the next job and then when I could get the next job. So I was able to get things a little earlier by being proactive, if yeah. that makes right. any yeah. sense. Right. And the quality of your questions, too. And I, uh, before yes. I know you're about to ask a question, I want to say one okay. more thing yeah, about yeah, yeah. that, about the yeah. culture. I feel like yeah. when you talk about companies deciding employees like where to work, and I think that goes back to what you said at the beginning of the interview, too, about like feedback loops. and asking good questions to your manager or the manager answering those and that two-way communication is like a, a form of feedback so i, I feel like as long as you're gonna allow employees flexibility to work where they want there needs to be a two-way understanding of how feedback is going to work from the beginning to the end of the role totally so, right tim couldn't so. agree with you more yeah wow. um oh there it is uh so i'm gonna Track us a little bit. You said you wanted to, after Anthem, you yep. wanted to give back a little bit. But at what point towards the end of your days with Anthem did you realize, I've, I've kind of grown as much as I can here. I've done what I can do. It, it is time to move on. I think I realized um, that I wanted to finish out my corporate career when I was 50. And mm-hmm. I knew okay. I wanted like five more years of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Five more years of finishing what I started and accumulating wealth so that I could play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then still being young enough that I could do interesting things and mm. healthy enough, right? Because when yeah. I say there's no guarantees, there's no guarantees how long you're going to live, right. you know, how much of that 
time you plan for post-career. I mean, the key to me is enjoy your career while you're in it. Enjoy every stage of life while you're in it. But if you want something that goes into what we traditionally call retirement, you have to kind of be intentional about that. And so from 50 to 55, I was planning financially. I was planning tactically. I was developing replacements for me on my team. Yeah. I was thinking about it from, kind of from that standpoint. Cool. But not talking about it. Yeah. Because the uh, only to the people who needed to, I was talking to my wife and my financial advisor, yeah, but yeah. not my boss yet. Because as soon as you start talking to your boss about leaving, yeah. <laughs> they have this thing in your mind that you're checking out. Yeah. And so I was very careful. I gave him yeah. plenty of notice, but not too much. Yeah. Like you said earlier, things happen sooner than, than they can sometimes. And one of those, like, <laughs> yeah, boss gets one of that, like, hey, here, you're leaving. All right, we're going to get a replacement. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I had three more years of my plan left. and Right. So. And you don't want to be the lame duck guy, right? Right. So you have to kind of think about that as well. Yeah. And it sounds like you were doing, like, when you say develop, knowing who, like, putting people in place, like, no, mm-hmm. like developing people to, to take over, like, when you made that step. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe talk a little bit about that, about when you evaluated, like, the people that you knew were ready for that next level of leadership, any characteristics they shared, anything that you looked for in these team members that you knew that, like, they were the, the person to, to replace you? I think, uh, fantastic question, Tim. I, I think, um, you know, at the end, given the scope of my job, which, you know, was a 45,000-person company, we had 750 people in HR, we had to, I had to have someone who could get things done through other people, mm-hmm. right? So a great individual contributor who could just get things done by his or her own effort was not good enough. You had to figure out how to mobilize and engage and rally people and get productivity through other people. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the key skill I was looking for. And then, you know, the other skill was people who can be on the senior team working for the CEO. Because you have two jobs, really. Your your functional job leading HR, and then you're on the leadership team. Mm -hmm. And so everything, company strategy, you know, how we're going to handle certain problems, challenges, whatever, you have to be a contributor at that level too. So twofold, could you lead the HR function well, get things done through other people? Could you be a senior member of the company mm-hmm. and, and, and contribute in a positive way in those decisions? That's good. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Now, did you have some, some good mentorship, uh, whether inside Anthem, outside of Anthem, that made you want to then get into being career mentor and, and coach in the space you are now? It's funny. I had, I had good bosses. I had terrible bosses. I never had formal mentorship. But I learned something from all of them. Like I tried to pick the ones I respected most and engaged me the most. I tried to observe what it was they did that engaged me and and then apply that. Um, I learned from the bad bosses what not to do. Literally, I did. And and it was like really early in my career, I had some horrible ones. And I just said, I'm never going to be like that. Please, God, don't let me ever be like that. (laughs) So I think in 33 years, I had 22 bosses. No formal mentors. But some that I learned a lot of positive things from and some that I learned from what not to do. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So then take us through your transition from, from Anthem to now you're at Butler. You're helping students figure out what they want to do, which is like they might know now. They might not like I think I know now. And who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um, so what was that transition like? Well, the biggest one, we, my colleagues joke, because a lot of the, when you leave corporate life and you have a, a pretty kind of good job, you, uh, a lot of people go into consulting and this kind of, it, and I could have done all that, and uh, and 
But my, my friends joked, you're going from who's who to who's he, right? You're, you're like going off the grid. You're like going, you're going back to school and working with kids. Are you sure? And like, there's no prestige. There's no money in that. And I said, yeah, but you know, if I wanted that, I could stay here, right? So yeah, yeah. I want to do something just really fun. And to me, I had a really close friend that I went to college with. And I was telling him I want to work with young people. And he said, yes, you want to work with college kids. And I said, I don't know, high school, college? He goes, no, college. And I said, why? He said, I just know you. I know the sweet spot. And the sweet spot for you is 18 to 20. You don't want to wipe their nose, mm-hmm. but you want to also, you, you want to catch them when they're young enough and life is interesting. Yeah. And you know how crazy interesting college is. Yeah. So I think I, I picked no college. <laughs> <laughs> I think I picked college because, you know, with the help of a lot of people, 18 to 22 is such a fascinating period of your life. And what I love about this is I work all four years. So I see the 18-year-old, I see the 22-year-old, I'm with them all four years. And to go through that journey with, with young people, I thought would be fun. It's turned out to be way more fulfilling and way more fun than I ever thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's you work a, with you work with, oh go ahead go ahead no I was gonna say it's just it's a time where they're really figuring out who they are too yep like you found your home for four years now you're actually tracking for a career right of what you think you want to do and that's just that's got to be fascinating too to see where people's heads are at what they want to do I'm sure you've heard some pretty wild things of oh this is the type of job I want to have with mm-hmm. how many different ways can you make money these days right um, but that that's that's got to be a fascinating aspect of it is oh, that's what you want to do I didn't know you could do that okay cool <laughs> let's figure out how to get you there yeah yeah and sometimes you have to just kind of clean their heads of preconceived notions like a lot of times the, they come in saying I want to be an accountant and I said okay why do you want to be an accountant by the way what's your mom and dad do oh they're an accountant and I was like oh yeah. okay and you I know I'm gonna get a job if I'm an accountant right so it's like okay those are those are good things good place to start now let's let's talk about all the other things that are out there and let's just make sure you want to be an accountant right yeah. so I, I think it's like freeing them up to think about all the possibilities so that they actually are more likely to pick something that fulfills them not mm-hmm. just pays the bills yeah. or is because it's all they've seen. There's so much when you're 18 that you've never seen before. So you, it's it's almost really impossible to think when you're 18 about what you want to do. Yeah. So bottom line, I think what I tell my students when you graduate should have just two criteria. One is you like doing it every day. You enjoy it. You don't you don't crawl out of bed because it sucks. You crawl out of bed because this is fun. And the second thing is but you still crawl out of bed, right? It's hard, <laughs> hard to get up, adulting. But, um, but the second part is you're going to learn and develop your skills. Mm-hmm. So two years into it, you have better skills than you did before. And now you'll two years worth of knowing more about what you might like to do. It's a continuous journey. Mm-hmm. And, and I think careers are like that in general. Yeah. When you're 30, you're still going to be figuring out what the right. next thing is you want to do because you've got eight years of real-world experience where you've learned more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you, so the students that say, well, I don't know what I'm passionate about. I'm not sure what's out there. Like, is there anything that you take them through, whether it's like exercises, like self-discovery questions, like what's kind of your process working with students that aren't either sure what their passions are or not sure like what skills that they want to develop yet? We do, uh, we have some, um, first year we have uh, a focus on exploration. So we do Mm -hmm. Myers-Briggs, we do a... Uh, thing called focus two which is kind of a uh, skills and interests and personality kind of profile that spits out some 
typical careers that might be good fits for them. Mm-hmm. So we do those things, but the most important thing I think we do is we get them to get out there and talk to people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're interested in this, I'll like align them with a graduate who's doing what they think they want to do, mm-hmm. just to find out what it's like. Informational conversations, we'll call them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go see something. Go shadow somebody today. You know, spend yeah. a day with them. Um, and then internships, um, trying things on. Also classes. We always talk about what class kind of really interested you. And it's amazing how much those classes can give you clues into yeah. what you might like or what you might not. So every experience they have when they're in college, you know, is a little piece of data that we can string together to mm-hmm. just give people an idea about what might be a good way to start their career. Yeah. And we're at Butler. There's like a million things to do here too. There's extracurriculars. There's student yep. student government. There's things within the business school. Like yeah, if, if you're if you're like, your problem. yeah <laughs> if, if, if you're a student like there's so many things to do here. There's I feel 130 like 130 clubs. Yeah, I can't I mean, believe is that. that all. Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, there's a kid the other day that's starting a ping pong club. We didn't. Tim? We don't already have a ping pong club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, pickleball for, clubs. Pickleball clubs. Tim will be head coach. Tim will be head coach. That's good experience. Good leadership experience. Yeah. Club pickleball. Hey, I just plug you. You're gonna be head coach. You're first yeah. on the list for Woo. reaching out. So. Cut that. Cut that. We'll cut that clip and save it. Yeah. Yes. No, that's good. Done. Yeah. No, for real. That was one of the deciding factors for me, though. Coming to Butler was just the extracurricular stuff, and obviously, like you have the business school. But is that a big factor that you see of why students choose Butler? Is like the business school, or what are some of the things that you? you I see? always ask my first years when in my first meeting one on one. Why, tell me about your search. What were the final schools? Why'd you choose Butler? And mm-hmm. over and over and over again, I hear, I really like the vibe here. You mm-hmm. know, when I came here, I felt welcomed. I felt like I could fit in here. I felt like people were friendly here and, and inviting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you hear things like, um, I like the size of the place. I felt like I'd get the, you know, with 5,000 students, the right level of attention, but not too much. And mm-hmm. And small school with a big time basketball program or right. you know the school of business the building we have a new building and it's kind of engaging but it's over and over again it's the tour that locks I have a lot of students tell me well I was on my way from IU to Purdue we said eh, stop at Butler and yeah. Yeah, just give it a flyer right and mm-hmm. usually they're I'm talking to them here right yeah, so yeah. it's the it's the I don't have a history with Butler until 2014 I fall in love with the place. There's, it's just a it attracts good people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's uh, yeah, not just the flyover school anymore. No, it isn't. <laughs> I remember when when I was a student here, and I don't know, we'd be driving from the HRC or somewhere, and you see a big tour group, and it's beautiful out. Uh, I would just yell, "Go dogs!" like as obnoxiously <laughs> as I could, and it's like the kids are a little embarrassed, but kind of want to be that person, and yeah. the parents eat it up yes I'm like oh wow they, look at this school spirit exactly here. So I'm yeah. like they love their school <laughs> I'm, I'm the white-haired guy who walks by that tour group and just goes thumbs up you know Excellent. just stick yeah. my thumbs up yeah, it's like right. wow even the old guys like it here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of the spirit of the place yeah. and yeah. you know you guys know you're there's we're not a perfect place but it's a it's a good place for a lot of people and mm-hmm. it's definitely been a good place for me yeah. yeah and I want to ask you about that obviously you came here to teach students and educate based on your experiences but is there anything that you've learned about yourself or anything students have taught you about yourself or anything that you've gained because obviously you've helped a lot of people anything that you've gained through this experience well here's an interesting uh, thing to me is 
remember when I said really early on that I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't want to struggle for money? So <laughs> that, that itch to do teaching at the right level never went away. Right. Right. So I did it. I found a way to develop people mm-hmm. and make money and have a good career at it. And it was fascinating. I loved it. Mm-hmm. But now I'm back to that root thing that I think I always wanted to do, which is one-on-one with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things I've learned, two things I've learned, is you got to stay relevant. Right. You can't you uh, I, I have to I learned that students, 18 year olds don't read emails. They especially don't read long emails. <laughs> I learned what <laughs> bullet points. Yeah, <laughs> I learned what TLDR meant. Too long, didn't read. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh. <laughs> you are up to date. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah. What else you got? We got acronyms for days. Hit us with a few. That's great. <laughs> I am I am working on tightening and refining my communication skills, yeah. mm-hmm. meeting them where they are. And it's fun. It's fun to keep evolving. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, there's a part of me that feels like I'm continuing to grow and evolve in ways that will be more relevant and engaging to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like it. And, you know, my placement rate is something we always measure 99%, meaning within six months of graduation, you've got a full-time job that you like, right? Mm-hmm. But um, my other metric is weddings invited to. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, tally that up. Yeah. Number eleven this year in December. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, your fridge is full, huh? You did too good a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that ultimately, when you stay in contact with a student, like you know our friend Blake, mm-hmm. right? Who we, yeah. we know both. Know. Shout out Blake yeah, Herford. Yeah, yeah. yeah Herford. Blake Herford. What a guy. Um, but you stay in touch with people after they graduate, not because you either of you want have to, but because you want to. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. kind of a that's a fun thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you were telling about me when we met last week or the week before how you coach students through year one, through year four, MBA students, mm-hmm. but then you also have that network of students that are in the workforce in Indy. So right. How has that allowed you to provide a better overall service for your students? I'm I'm a better mentor today because I have that network now. Mm-hmm. So meaning specifically I've got 150 undergrads that have graduated and are in, you know, their early mid to mid to late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got MBA students 70 that I worked with and they're all out there between 35 and or 25 and 40. Mm-hmm. And so they're out there in the real world. Well, now I've got my come back to my 85 that I have now. I've got like a group of, of potential people for them to network into mm-hmm. that all I have to do is connect them and they're off and running that's sure. like three times their size. Mm-hmm. So there's somebody out there to help every student I have right now depending on what they want to explore. Last night, you know, I was meeting with a student who Supply chain and marketing, market research are her two things she really wants to dig into. Thought of an MBA student who was just like her a lot of, in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Asked Lee if he would meet with her, and you know today they're off and running. Yeah, yeah. And I found that graduates, young graduates especially, really want to help current students. Hmm. And and their that young experience is very relevant to my mm-hmm. current students. They like talking to people who are 25 who can still relate to what it's like to be just starting your career. It's very useful to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, earlier you mentioned, um, you know, kind of in line with the network. I think that's great. You have different groups and you can just, oh, I have this person to connect to so-and-so. What, and you'll have people follow around or shadow for a day. What are your thoughts on taking a gap year in between graduating high school, going to college, Cause not like I loved my college experience; it gave me a lot. But now, in hindsight, I'm thinking 
maybe I would have taken a year to try a few different things to see if I need that degree right now or if I need to try to run a business and, and see if I can figure that out with what I really want to do and do I need this just yet? It's a good question. I, and so <laughs> my honest answer is I don't think people, unless there's a plan, and there are some disciplines where a, a plan like this would work, it should go to graduate school right after graduating especially to get an MBA. You should get some work before going back to get your MBA. Now, if you're going to get your master's in professional accounting and it's a one year right after and you can sit for the CPA, do it. Definitely. Sure. It's a different kind of a thing. But for most people, taking time between graduating and going to graduate school is good. Gap years, mm, I'm not a big fan. I, I think I think if gap year means screwing around, um, okay. But if I'd rather see you trying something yeah, just something yeah. mm-hmm. to see if you like it or not, because you're not if if you're going to use a, a gap year to travel and do something that you've never done, and you just really want to do that. There's an intentionality about it. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Sure. But a gap year just to sit around because I don't know yet is probably not a good idea. And I'm, I'm right. afraid some people do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Just the, they get paralyzed by not knowing what they want to do. So instead, they, Man, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. And mental health. You, you, sometimes people need a mental health break. Right. Yeah. They should definitely do that. Because my thought in, in asking was I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do, but then I really had no clue. And right. halfway through school, I realized what I was really good and drawn to, but I was halfway through a, a degree. Right. So then it was, oh, what else can I do to get enough cred for what I want to do to make myself valid out on the street afterwards? Right. And if I would have tried a few things for a year, maybe I would have found that niche a little earlier and then had a better plan coming into college so we're we're pretty much agreeing because we're you're basically saying try a few things yep. yeah if, yep. if gap year is trying a bunch of stuff to yeah. see what fits, no, i didn't want to couch definitely do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah and you're, you're, you're talking couch. about gap year before you start college <laughs> I'm, yeah i'm, I'm okay. saying before but between college. between oh, high school between, college? between high school and college wow that's interesting yeah i think i think you might have you guys might have oh, talked about different that's, things no that's all right no, i still cool. think between you know knowing your strategy between graduate school and and your undergrad is good too but yeah, my, my thoughts are, you know, maybe I should have taken a year to have a better plan going into college. I'd say. Uh, of having direction yeah. of why I'm going to this degree and not, oh, I think I'm going to get up early, have a suit, read the Wall Street Journal on my way to work every day and, you know, <laughs> be in big business. And I, and I hated corporate. You know, it's possible that I've never really thought about gap year between, you're talking about between high school and college. High school and college, yeah. Wow. Because most of the time when people talk about, like, when you say gap year, most people think, like, it's the one after college. Right. Yeah, you're... Right. That's where I went right away. Yeah. So sorry I wasn't... No, that's all right. That's right. But it's an interesting concept. I'm kind of, like, thinking about it now for the first time. And I, Mm -hmm. I actually think... Could be worthwhile. The only problem is you're still 18. Yep. And and the way to start finding out what you enjoy is throwing yourself into things. And I wouldn't want that gap year to be something that kept you from going to college. Because and it's not right for everybody, but there's a lot of data out there that still says that four-year degree is is transformational in your life. For sure. Mm-hmm. For, yeah. for earnings. Yeah. If, it, if the risk was that you took the year off and then didn't finish and, and go to school, then it's a bad thing. But for some people, it could be exactly what yeah. they need. Yeah. Yeah, I think regardless, like, when you, when and if you take decide to take that gap year, like, what we're all agreeing on is, like, maximize your time in that gap yeah. or whatever you're doing. And Do re- regardless if you're going to be taking a gap year or you're at college, like, you it's good to like establish relationships and ask questions, have conversations with people and mm-hmm. do, like exactly. find out. Yeah. So I have a student now who's, who's 
he is a 2020 grad and he he spent uh, two years working in a really kind of prestigious program mm-hmm. decided it wasn't right for him and he just he's taken a gap period uh-huh. and he's he's traveling and he's doing photography and I think he's he's trying to see whether or not photography and the travel that went with it are two parts of his life that mm-hmm. he wants to be permanent or mm-hmm. if he just wants to experience it now and then yeah. and then figure out what next yeah mm-hmm. so for him I think he, there's an intentionality yeah. there that's kind of helpful yeah that makes sense okay I guess my question for you as well going off like I mean you help undergrads MBA students obviously those are different career stages different goals um how do you tailor your message or the way you interact with people, MBA students versus undergraduate students? And yeah, I guess how do you kind of tailor the message? It's a, it's a phrase someone taught me called meet everybody where they are. You mm-hmm. know, and, and so the first thing I always try and do with each person is um, figure out where they are mm-hmm. you know, on their life journey and where their head is and what they're feeling good about and what they've already done, what they haven't done, mm-hmm. and then tailor my approach to wherever that is. Right. And so until you really get to know the person a little bit and kind of like where they are in their history, first meeting I have with every student is just to, is, is 30 minutes of just tell me your story. Right? Yeah. And until I know that context, it's really hard to jump in and be helpful. Sure. Right, right. That's good. Now, what are some ways you get someone thinking about you you mentioned earlier that a lot of people don't know what they want to do or I want to be an accountant and you get a little more behind that well why or their parents did that but if someone's like well I don't want to do what my parents did I have no idea what I like to do maybe they're trying a few different clubs in terms of career how do you kind of guide those students that just they're having a hard time figuring it out yes um the first first that's a great question to Colin um the first thing is Tell them, don't be anxious about it. We're gonna we're gonna work our way through this, right? It's a tough one, not be anxious about. It's really tough one, yeah. Because you know, I'll basically tell them, most people don't really nail it until they get to senior year, right? So give yourself the first three years to experiment and try things, and don't have to. I mean, seventy-five percent of people don't do anything related to their major at some point in their career, right? <laughs> so don't worry that your major is locking you in for life, right? And, yeah. and and then I tell them, I was an econ major, who knew, right? It's like everybody told me, you can't do anything with an econ major. And I said, yeah, maybe I'll try, but I didn't know what it would be. Yeah. So don't obsess about your major, don't obsess about your career. Let's just find out what you enjoy. And so then we start doing, and, and a little bit about who you are. So the Myers-Briggs, you know, can give you a little indication of what kind of person you are and what you like. And then another diagnostic can maybe suggest careers. And then you do all those things we talked about earlier. Why don't you go talk to this guy? He's doing that. You find that interesting. Tell me what class you really liked. And pretty soon we're stringing together a pattern that suggests I like problem solving. I like complex problem solving type jobs, right? I like jobs that involve a lot of creativity. If it's too much structure, I don't like that work. Mm -hmm. So you have big buckets of types of work that you've learned, the person has learned, they find fulfilling and those that they haven't. There's some people who could never be entrepreneurs like you guys, just don't have it in them. And then there's there's people who want to go out and and ring the bell and give it a shot and they have a, a greater appetite for risk and trying things and less worried about a corporate structure. You know, good. Okay, maybe entrepreneurship is for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's the pattern. Yeah, I like that. Like start like the buckets of work criteria. Start start big, and then you can always you can always filter the search as you go on and be more specific. 
Correct. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. It's a great way to break it down. Like, mm-hmm. You want to be told exactly what to do every day, how high to jump or, or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and kind of go from there. The biggest, the biggest large buckets are people who need to be with other people and be creative in their work and you know, let it evolve versus people who like a little structure and want some structure and framework in, in which they can do their, their jobs. Mm-hmm. So the, the financial people, the accounting people, the risk and insurance people, the supply chain people tend to gravitate more towards structure just in the world of business. And then the, the marketing people, the sales people, the human resources people, the, the helpers, the advocates, um, the entrepreneurs, they, they can often handle more ambiguity and they're, they tend to be a little bit more um, inclined toward uh, people-oriented jobs, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, yeah, so obviously nothing's going to beat the in-person interaction, relationship building, but like now, in, we're in 2022, everything's a lot more digital, digital age, social media. Is there anything, like any advice that you give, and things are different now with applying for jobs and networking in a digital age. Do you have any advice for students or any resources you give students to help them navigate job search in a digital age? Yes. Um, again, a great question. Don't underestimate LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is just throwing out a profile isn't enough. Make sure that you have you do the extra stuff. Throw in a background picture. Throw mm-hmm. in a headshot of you in portrait mode that looks like you threw a tie on or something, right? Mm-hmm. But more importantly than that, fill up the content with stories about you. There's, a, there's yep. an about section on LinkedIn. And more than half of college students don't even bother to fill it in. It's free form writing. It's where you get to kind of tell your story. And recruiters have told me over and over again, when I'm out there looking proactively for students, I'll look for, you know, I'll do all the keywords and then I'll see if they have an about section. Because mm-hmm. I want to see what kind of person they are, right? Yeah. And so the biggest thing you can do for yourself with social media is make sure you have a great profile to get someone who wants to meet you and talk mm-hmm. to you. Because nobody wins a job by their social media profile, but you get a chance to talk to people who are job givers yep. by what you put out there. And the other thing is use it to network. Mm-hmm. You have 500 connections. Do you ever reach out to any of them? For <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. For anything? Hold on, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're sitting there and they're out there. Yeah. Uh, Butler has a proprietary one called Wiser, W-I-S-R. Thousand Butler alum who've put themselves on that page just because they want to help you if you reach out to them. Mm-hmm. What's it called? W-I-S-R. Okay. We call it Wiser. Gotcha. It's and, awesome. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's there. So there's mm-hmm. tons of stuff out there, but sort of maximizing the use of them is what probably you still have to do the human stuff, like contact somebody mm-hmm. that's put yeah. themselves out there. Yeah. Okay. It's funny you bring up LinkedIn. Tim's been bullish on LinkedIn and making sure I was getting the same the last couple of years. And so within, I'd say, the last year, I've been hitting it consistently pretty hard and sure enough it got me a partnership with a golf equipment company i do work with golfers quite a bit too um i like working with high performing athletes and he's like hey man i have this facebook group of this many thousands of people if you have this type of content if you get a guide make you know make that for me we'll dish it out and it's because of linkedin because i made a post about tim hitting a record setting drive yeah and i was like oh 335. 335 on, on a par four. 35 yards. On a par Impressive. four. Yeah, so all I had to do was basically put it in on a par four. Because <laughs> of you. Yeah. 
Um, but so yeah, it's funny you bring up LinkedIn, and it's just I think it's still getting slept on, um, and I can still do better, but. I'm consistent and now it's you know I know Tim gets a lot of good business from from LinkedIn as yeah. well and it's it's an incredible resource you just got to if you just post things and leave it there you'll get some action you will mm-hmm. because there's a whole body of I mean I was on the other side of the table doing recruiting and you have your recruiting army who do does all these things that kind of troll social media for keywords and all you have to have is the right couple of keywords and somebody sees that you're there while you're sleeping, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. And, um, and so just having the right presence out there, keywords can be overstated, but make sure your, your um, LinkedIn profile has the right kind of keywords that are going to attract people, um, mm-hmm. you know, creative problem solver, whatever it is um, that will catch somebody's attention. Um, if you've done something, put it out there. Don't minimize your experiences. Tell students that all the time, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's one of those things. LinkedIn is such a multifaceted platform. It's one of those where you get out of it what you put into it, too. Because, like, yeah, you can update your profile and people will find you. But, yeah, you have to either put an effort to create relationships, network on there. Um, I also get people, the people that I work, ask me, like, hey, sh- should I be posting on LinkedIn? Should I be uh, – what are some professional things that I can post on LinkedIn? Do you ever get that question about people like posting on LinkedIn? Yeah, and I think I think it matters a little. I mm-hmm. think it could be a differentiator. It just shows all that shows is that you're active on it. That yeah. you're not some passive guy who put a put this profile out two years ago and just right. lets it ride. So mm-hmm. at least con, you know congratulating people, acknowledging other people, whatever it is, posting your own content. Yeah. I think everything you do to make it more robust mm-hmm. is is all things equal a plus. Yeah, sharing other articles too, like yes. even like making a comment on an article, something like that. Yeah, if you've created something and yeah. you want to put it out there, that's something you enjoy. Um, yeah, definitely, I think it all adds up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you make such a good point about just visibility. People may see your profile, and um, yeah, I th- and you make a good point as well as about keeping it updated because there will be times where people see your profile for the first time and they may have never seen your resume or I've never met you before. So yeah, yeah. having something updated there is key. To that point, because your co- your audience is probably more than college students, way more than college students. The when you leave college, make sure you keep updating LinkedIn. Yeah. So many of my students, they still have their senior year thing at 25, right? It's like, yeah. no, you're not an intern there anymore, right? Yeah, you're, yeah. You're working at Salesforce. Yeah. Make yeah. sure the world knows the latest thing you're doing. You're still a houseboy at Alpha yeah. Chi? <laughs> right. No, that's such a good point. You're yeah. good at serving the food, baby. Man. Man. my thing. Yeah. Hey, if that's your calling. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You got no, a meal plan out here. Because yeah. a lot of people, too, like, they – they may have never needed a resume. They may have never needed to look for a job and they may right. never think to update their LinkedIn. But yeah, like right. at the end of the day, like regardless of what happens if you're at your company, if they're successful, if things are going well, like they have the right to fire you at any time at, right. at, at yeah. the end of the day. Like That's they, right. like tomorrow's not just like life isn't promised tomorrow. Your job tomorrow isn't promised. So it's good to have some type of plan B in presence it in case. Is. It yeah. really is. But I, I, I just say one more thing real quickly about your resume or your LinkedIn profile. When you're young, don't es- underestimate any experience you've had. Mm-hmm. So the best example I've, I've ever seen of that, I'm going to give a shout out to a guy named Jake Bowers, uh, who's a finance guy at, at my former company now, Anthem. And when he was 15 or 16, he came from rural Indiana, and he had a job on an industrial pig farm when he was 15 and 16. And I mean, that was a horrible job. I mean, mm-hmm. you can imagine what you had to do on an industrial mm-hmm. yeah, pig yeah. farm, <laughs> how it was every day to go to work and what it smelled yeah. like and all that. Yeah. And 
I remember when he's a senior, he said, I think I'm going to, I don't have room and I'm going to take that off. I said, don't take it off. Do not take that off. He goes, why? I said, that tells employers something about you. And I bet when you go in for that finance job interview at Anthem, they're going to ask you about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he came back, and I, I didn't know if that would happen or not, but it turned out everybody asked him about that. Mm-hmm. What did it show? Wow, you've been willing to work since you were 15 years old. Yeah. You're willing to do hard, thankless work, right? Yeah. You've got yeah. some grit in you, buddy. And so little things like that, you don't underestimate. They give you clues. That's great advice. Being a houseboy, right? Yeah, yeah. You work, right? Multitasking skills. Multitasking, right? (laughs) And they say men can't multitask. We got to be here to prove that wrong. (laughs) That's such a great point, Randy. It it all adds up. Yeah. So with that, Randy, what what's uh, you know maybe something that happened at Anthem? Maybe something beforehand, uh, as far back as we need to go. What's a job or experience within a job that has made you better? in your current role hmm wow that whether you thought it would or not yeah let me think about that for a second yeah yeah um actually actually i think i think the experience with mergers and integrations helped me realize the importance of pausing to do that thing i said earlier meet people where they are so you acquire a company and you think this is how you show up to them, and then you realize what they see is X because you've sat down and talked to them. So that whole, like I do with students, I think I sit down and get to know students first because I realize before you integrate a company, you need to get to know the new the CEO of that place, the top team, as people, right? Mm-hmm. So that you understand where their heads are. So mm-hmm. I think in a weird way, I don't. you've made me think about something I don't think I've thought about, <laughs> is that that M&A experience probably helped me be more attentive to the uniqueness of individuals because, mm. you know, we're all different animals. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And people talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. It's so important now. And, but it, diversity has many forms. Um, there's race, gender, um, sexual orientation, but there's also, you know, income. Like, you, did you mm. grow up in a family where you had means or not? Yeah. Um, did you um, did you have a lot of resources when you were young? What experiences did you have when you were young? What didn't you have? And so I think understanding the uniqueness of everyone's life mm-hmm. is pretty important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that skill of being able to meet everyone where they are at mm-hmm. is it's exponential. Um, when people know that you can understand where they're at, not that you don't have a cookie-cutter plan. Exactly. For all these students, right? You exactly. you have someone who, I know exactly what I want to do. This is my direction. Okay, go. Mm-hmm. To, dude, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here. Right. And you can meet both ends of the spectrum. I think that is such a valuable skill. Um, so it's fitting that you are where you are right now. Uh, I hope so. I hope I do more good than harm. Uh, but, but, you know, the whole, sometimes the kids who are the most versatile, have the hardest time figuring out what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them that versatility in the long run is going to pay off, right? It's going to, it's driving you nuts right now because you don't know where to start. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in your 20s, developing a broad skill set of diverse skills will pay off later. Mm-hmm. I, I always coach kids, don't go too, too narrow too fast because you will rise quicker, but you'll top out sooner. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that you're 35 and you can do one thing. And then you're going to say, oh, no, you know, I mm. want to do something else. And I said, oh, that's cool. But, you know, you've earned a lot and we don't want to pay you that to be a trainee. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. the more you can diversify and give yourself lots of options for later in your 20s, 
the more I think it pays off too. And plus you have broader perspectives. The more things you do, the more aware you are of, of you know, everything you've seen. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a one-trick pony, you know, it's good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's great advice. It's really good. And I think with your your experience in, in corporate, you didn't just you're not a, your experience is not limited to just teaching, being in an academic uh, environment. That's one thing that um, was big for me in school is when I had an adjunct. Yeah. Like there, there's for years now been a, a seed in the back of my mind of it. Someday when I quote unquote make it, mm-hmm. air quotes. I want to be some sort of adjunct professor to teach what's really out there that's not in the book. Right. And, you know, zero knock on, on Butler, but I had some business professors that all they did was teach. And then luckily we had business mentors that had their own businesses or knew the world, but it's like, man, I, I need someone who's done it. Right. Who has walked the walk and then they can teach. And I think right. that's a huge uh, advantage of yours where you've seen a lot and done a lot and talk to a vast amount of different people from different backgrounds. So I think that's... And messed up a lot. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You've seen what not to do, you've done what not to do, and and you've learned and grown from it. So I think that just has to make you uh, even more um, uh, of a helpful resource to students here. You try. Yeah, Yeah. you try. I do do think, um, you know, adjuncts, when, when universities get accredited... They look at the, the, the tenured faculty versus adjuncts and all this, uh, lots of stuff that you just have to do. But the truth of the matter is adjuncts are very valuable for the reason you said. Whenever I'm talking to a student and they say, you know, they want to talk about something, go talk to Professor Kaido. He's, he's actually doing it too, right? Yeah, right? And he's got this network of people out there, right? And, and so, yeah, I think you hit it you nail on the head. Being yeah. able to combine experience with teaching can be a good thing. Yeah, but make your money first before you become an adjunct. Right, they don't pay anything. Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. That's why I said after after I made it, you know, when I could afford to take some time because yeah. I, I had a nighttime accounting class and God, accounting at night is tough. Yeah. yeah. But one of his like first classes, he made the comment like, "Hey, I'm here because I want to be, not because I need mm-hmm. to get paid." Right. And I'm like, "That's that's the guy. That's the one you want to hang around." Hundred percent. Yeah. Adjuncts, like, and there's some wonderful, I mean, wonderful tenured faculty people who are committed to education and 100%. extremely valuable. But it's the mix. It's the mix right. that you know. Tap into that professor for that reason. Tap into the other one for another reason. Each one can give you something different. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a principle too. Just while you're, we're on this kind of, you made me think. One of the best things I learned about culture shaping was this principle called curiosity versus judgment, mm-hmm. and so. You know, you look at somebody and you have a choice to be judgmental or curious about everything you see. And so you look at somebody and you say, why did he do that stupid thing, right? He is a blank. You fill in the, <laughs> usually with not good words, right? Yeah, something yeah, bad. Yeah. And, then, and then you say, well, wait a minute. Maybe he had a bad day. Maybe he wasn't on his game. Maybe, there's, you know, all the, if, you, if you just are willing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt and be curious versus judgmental, it really shapes kind of how you engage other people mm. and how you meet them. So I learned that the hard way with a couple of my students, like, oh, blew off the first three meetings with me. What the heck's the matter? Well, there was something the matter, right? Yeah. And yeah. it wasn't just that the kid was blowing me off. There was something wrong. And, and I was ashamed of myself for assuming, being judgmental, that they weren't disciplined, that they were ignoring me, when in reality they were dealing with other stuff. So mm. I've, I've just learned 
you can't build a mentoring relationship when you're judgmental with people. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Stay curious, stay curious. Yeah. Now, when they screw up, you got to you know, yeah, hold yeah. them accountable. Right. But the reality is go for curiosity first. Don't rush to judgment. That's an important lesson I think I've learned in this yeah. job. That's huge. It's extremely valuable. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've told people questions with me go a long way. Yeah. Just ask some questions, right. and then if it is what you think it is, then we'll deal with it. it yeah. It's probably not, though. That's a great just place. Ask yeah. the questions. And our tagline for the show is naturally curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Just, yeah. That's what drives that's yeah, that's what drives our questions. We yeah. Keep and going. I, I, set I, this told up. You, I don't trust that GoPro. So okay. Keep um going. yeah, I yeah. Every and we talked about it. Every person has a unique story. Everyone <laughs> comes from a unique background and that's an asset and to everybody. So you know, yeah. and that, that whole theme of just something eighteen year olds don't um, haven't had to do before is they haven't had to manage their own calendar. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad has managed their calendar. The bell rang and said it's time to go to this class. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly you're in college. Now you have to you have to manage your time differently. And that right. can take a while. So sometimes those kids that are blowing you off, it's just they're learning how to manage their time for the first time. And uh-huh. some are doing it really well and some aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Uh, and then yeah, I know we want to be respectful of your time and before we get Back to our, down to our final question. I want to make sure I'm asking. Um, you've given us a lot of advice on here about like career direction for like everybody because you work with a lot of different students, a lot of different um, directions, career directions. Um, HR specifically, because I work with uh, a lot of people who they're making a career change into HR. Would they've we'll talk about people who have been in the workforce and they want to make a career change to HR. What are some advice that you have for those people about like where to start, um, some things that they can do to make a successful career change into HR? Um, I think there's two things. If you, if you go into HR, you should truly be fascinated by human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Why they do what they do, what makes them decide to do things like work there, be motivated mm-hmm. at work, not. So definitely start with your your love of the human animal and, and the uniqueness of people. Yeah. But also learn your business. Don't be an HR, an HR weenie. Don't be that administrator. Don't be Toby from the office, right? Yeah. <laughs> don't don't be <laughs> that knucklehead who only slaps people on the hand when they're doing things badly, right? That's the, the kind of HR person everybody hates. Mm-hmm. So the way you add value is learn why, how your business makes money. Learn what role people have in that figure out how you're going to drive the strategy and performance of the company through people. I right? love that. And when you add, when you approach the job that way, for example, I always wanted a scorecard for us. In HR, my talent acquisition team was measured on time to hire, cost to hire, and quality of hire. Mm-hmm. So we, we had to be held accountable for business performance. Um, you can't just be a good people person and be in HR. You've got to deliver the goods and you've got to help the business be better. Yeah, I love that. And then, yeah, obviously coupling that with what you said earlier about like developing, a, like knowing what you're passionate about, your skill set, and combining it with that. Right. That's a good outlook on HR specifically. Yeah. Okay. Figure out how your business makes money, figure out how people drive that, and then connect with them. Yeah. yeah makes sense. And I was lucky because I was acquired by GE in my 20s, and GE had like a a very progressive way of doing HR back then. Uh-huh. GE is sadly not the company it used to be. But at the time, it was kind of cutting edge on HR. So in my late 20s, I fell into it. I just got, nice. you know, uh, trained in an environment where I, it was, it was drilled into you. You know, HR is here to make our business better. How? Mm-hmm. What have you done to add value today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
That's huge, adding value today, because that's mm-hmm. Tim and I, our thing is, can we just add more value? <laughs> and, and the rest will come. And so I think, yeah, I love that. Is how much more value can you give to the company and, and the people in it and that want to be a part of it? But I will tell you this, maybe to add to that, it's amazing how, how, I don't want to say, how difficult managers have, how difficult managers find it to talk to people about difficult things. So if you're in HR, learn the skill of initiating and having a difficult conversation well. Because if you can do that, you can help your managers. Ultimately, HR is an advisor to management to help them do their jobs right. Um, and to, to help a manager who's struggling with talking to a person who's not performing or um, who can't get the job they want and you, you want to work with them and retain them for a while until that pops open, you know, how, do you, how do you initiate that? A lot of times managers don't talk to their people because they don't know what to say or how to say it. So if you're in HR, develop the skill of initiating and having challenging conversations. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's a huge skill. It is a huge skill. All right, were there, when you were in HR, did you see a common theme of, of a topic, of a difficult conversation in terms of topic, or? Performance. Performance, okay. So, so take us through briefly how you would address that tough conversation. Just if someone is listening and like, well, Okay, how, what do I do to, to be better at that? Right. Um, what are some things that you would advise on them to do to initiate and follow through with that and make that productive, even though it has to be tough? So I'd say, first of all, don't do it once a year. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got 11 months until I'm back. Let's kick it. <laughs> Annual performance reviews are different than performance coaching, right? They're a, a once-a-year way to document something. Great, it's necessary, good, but have regular one-on-ones with your, your staff. Like talk monthly, uh, mm. have a variety of agenda items every month. And if someone is, you catch the non-performance early, deal with it, talk about it. Hey, last month your number was 100 and you did 80. Talk about what went on. Let's see if we can break that down, right? Sure. Problem solve and find out. And, and you know, it, maybe you'll have to make some adjustments. Maybe you can add some form of uh, resource help uh, to help the person achieve their goals, or maybe that person just needs to own it a little bit more. But mm-hmm. if, if you identify the problem, attack the problem, not the person, and then dis- and do it regularly. And stay on it. The earlier you catch it, it's like medicine, right? If you mm-hmm. let a tumor grow and then try and deal with it later, it's going to be a different solution. Um, and too many managers let problems grow because they're afraid to talk about it. They don't want to hurt someone's feelings or mm-hmm. they're afraid they'll react poorly. You know, if you make it a regular routine, it, yeah. it's just normal normal yeah. life. Yeah. And the why behind why you turn a meeting in the first place. Right. The curiosity before judgment. Yeah. Yep. You're not hitting your number. Let's talk about why is that? What's happened this month, right? To yeah. your point, mm-hmm. ask questions and I'll be engaged. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I huge. think asking questions and probing with the spirit of trying to be helpful. You know, People know when they're being set up. Oh, mm-hmm. this is one of those conversations where he's documenting me to fire me later, right? Right. They they know when that's what you're doing. Don't get to that point. You know, mm-hmm. try and work the solution. If people feel like you're you're talking about their performance misses to really help them get back on their horse, then they'll respond well to that. Yeah. So, so have the right motives too. That's good. And it also, you know, it, if you're talking monthly, maybe every other month with mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. if their performance just is continuously under par and you do have to let that person go mm-hmm. at least then it's not a surprise bingo then it's hey we gotta let you go well 
what happened. Being it's good. like, well, the last eight months you were it's like, well, I didn't know, you know. Absolutely so it avoids right. that that surprise factor, and it's yeah, we kept talking about it, and I didn't change anything, and wh- whether they own it that well or not, right? You know, it's no surprise, and hopefully makes that conversation on the person who asked has to do the firing a little bit easier. Oh, you're you're so right, and you touched on one of the worst moments in my career is when I had, I let someone go and she was stunned Hmm. and it was like, wait a minute, you know, we talked about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But, but I never thought it was as bad as you're saying. I never. And, and, and when it was over, I still let her go because the behavior wasn't, we couldn't tolerate it anymore, but shame on me because I didn't let her know that had risen to the level where it was, is not going to work anymore. I could have done a better job at it letting her know at least, hey, it's time now, right? Unless yeah. this changes tomorrow, yeah. we're going to have a problem. And I didn't. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, shame on me. Mm-hmm. I learned that the Happens. hard way that you have to. Yeah, but the good news is I learned it early enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I learned it early. yeah and that's why so when I had to fire all these other people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, you will have to fire people if you live long enough and you, you're in management long enough because um, they don't always perform. Um, yeah. But but shame on you if you haven't done everything you can to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that. Yeah. Tim, uh, anything else before you fire away our, our last one here? Um, anything we haven't hit on? And then Randy, I want to make sure we, we touch on everything you want to hit too. No, I'm fine. We have good. questions, but we always kind of cover yeah. extras too. We, we love to detour here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. I thought we made the most out of the, the time we have, and I'm I'm good on mine in terms of cool. questions. I'll let you ask. Are you doing our OG or the new one? Let's do the OG since okay. the first time. Yeah. So, Randy, we always like to ask uh, one final consistent question with all of our guests, and we've tweaked it if we've had some, some repeat offenders. But uh, when it's all kind of said and done, you know, your time on earth is is over. How do you want people to remember Randy? Oh, wow. Um, he cared about me, and he made a difference in my life. And that's I great. think if they say those things, that's um, that's it. Love it. I think that's that's all I can hope for. At the end of that's the day, that's huge. Love that. Well. Randy, this was this was awesome. It was a pleasure meeting you and, and getting to chat with you. I appreciate your time. Great to uh, meet you, Colin. Yeah. So, and Tim, yeah. it's like we we're old friends, but we only met last week. I know. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I feel like I've known you for forever. Thanks yeah, I thought you me. guys go back. No. Like, like, Say, yeah, my guy to... Randy. I'm like, oh, he's this guy. Like, yeah. Yeah. like all right, like, you, guys the lobby, go, man. you guys go back. <laughs> all because of Blake Herford. Yeah, yeah. We have him to blame for this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Master networker Blake Herford, creating relationships. I love it. Got these schemers out here yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right well awesome uh, i know a lot of people are going to get a, lo- a ton of value from this uh so just thank you so much again and if there's any for anything we can do to, to help you students uh, you. in any thank way uh, let us know thanks guys i love what you're doing and it was an uh, honor and fun to be with you today yeah, yeah likewise. Thank you. all right everyone thanks for hanging thanks for listening until next time we are out of here <laughs>